Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Well, this one goes out to Jim Heatman. And while we're at it, Ruben Medina. Let's not forget John Helton. And obviously David Warner. <laughs> not to mention Holly Holland. And hopefully even you. A few months back, we asked you guys if you could help us get to over $5,000 per month in donations on Patreon. That's right, I said Patreon. We said. If you'd help us reach that goal by Thanksgiving, we'd make a song to thank you for the help. And you totally did. You totally did. And now we get over $5,000 a month on Patreon from you. So thank you so much, everybody, for you. We're bringing back the sound of me having orgasms because stamps.com might have been kind of annoyed by the orgasms, but Patreon won't care because this isn't an ad for them and they probably won't hear it anyway. Oh, it's orgasm sounds. Yes, it's orgasm sounds because that's how we feel about you and your support on Patreon. <laughs> yes, Patreon. <laughs> Patreon. And now there's like some 
flutes and violins. It's probably not. Probably not actually flutes, I don't think. Anyway, I, I promise it'll be over. It's over. It's over. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. We're going all the way back to 1938 with this one. This is Artie Shaw behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Dicey, proof that I do know how to use (laughs) thesaurus.com. Oh, and we started the episode with that new song, (laughs) that lovely new song to thank you for your support for us on Patreon. I have to give a little shout out now to our latest Patreon member. That is Matthew Angle. Thank you so much, Matthew and everyone out there. We want to keep that monthly number rising and rising and rising because we really do rely on the help from our fans. And there's tons of incredible content that you can't find on the free feed that's over there for our Patreon members. That's all at patreon.com slash risk. Now, we have another episode of three incredibly different stories from three very different shows recorded in three very different cities. (laughs) In a little bit, we're going to hear a story from Leland Karina, and her story was shared at the Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon. Our dear friends, Eric and Reba, who run the Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon, Uh, They send us these recordings of fantastic stories that are shared at their spectacular show that they do, I think, once a month up there. you got to look them up at mysteryboxshow.com. But before that, a story by Mike Cho that he shared at a recent New York Risk Live show. Uh, He has a photo blog at nycityofmike.blogspot.com. Here he is now with a story we call The Thing You Think Is Supposed to Happen. Hello. That was amazing. So I will tell you something that some of my close friends don't even know about me, and that is that uh, through my whole life I've struggled with often crippling social anxiety and social awkwardness. It comes and goes, but even on the best days, like I can always just feel it there right under the surface, and sometimes I can just hear somebody laughing or talking even in the next room or down the block, and I'll just suddenly be convinced that they're laughing at me and they're whispering and pointing and staring at me. 
So because of this, like, I hate going to parties because I'm terrible at them. And that makes me feel terrible. And so I hate parties. <laughs> this has been with me long enough that I've picked up all the little tricks that you learn to get you through life or at least get you through the day. You can practice smiling and saying hello in the mirror. You have this running list of conversation topics just constantly rolling in your head in case you run into somebody that you know and you have to talk about something. One trick that I picked up that I like is to always carry a camera around with me. And this helps for a lot of reasons. First, obviously, the lens and the screens and the viewfinder and all that, they create this safety barrier between you and the, and the rest of this world. I also like it because when people see you with a camera, and not just a camera phone, but an actual camera with like buttons and dials and all that on it, that automatically gives you a reason to be somewhere. You know, like you're the photo guy. You're there to take pictures. Otherwise, you're just a guy standing by himself in the middle of a crowded room just waiting for that thing you think is supposed to happen. So there are good days and there are bad days. And this day in February, three years ago, this was actually a good day anxiety-wise, even if it was pretty bad in all the other regards. Like I hadn't eaten since before noon, I hadn't been sleeping. I'd been having a rough week at work, my nine to six job. And I just worked a full day and had done a three hour volunteer shift on top of that. So I was exhausted and I was starving. But even so, I was running across town from West 13th and 7th Avenue to Houston Avenue A. And I was happy. I was happy because the hard part of the day was over. And I was going to meet my friend Mimian and we were going to see a show together. Mimi and I, we were at Mercury Lounge. We were there to see Mark Eitzel. He's a singer-songwriter that had been a favorite of ours for many years. Mark Eitzel sang for a band called American Music Club that I discovered when I was in college at that exact magic age where you first discover and really fall in love with music. And American Music Club, they sang these epic poems of longing and heartbreak and addiction, and they were just dripping with irony and pitch-black humor. And that was my life in the 90s. <laughs> and uh, Mark Eitzel, his solo stuff, it was brooding and intense and kind of terrifying. And the man himself is brooding and intense and kind of terrifying. And the room is crowded from our spot at the front of the stage and it's super hot like they had cranked up the heat when they first arrived in the afternoon and just had just left it on all day and Mark Eitzel he begins playing this song that I really love called Patriot's Heart which has this great lyric in it that says give me all your money and don't tell me what you're thinking I'm the past you wasted I'm the future you're obliterating because that is my life today <laughs> and then more out of habit and just because I always have it with me more than anything else, I pick up my point-and-shoot camera and I begin taking pictures. And Mark Eitzel, he brings the song to a dead stop and he looks directly at me and he says, could you stop that? Could you put that down, please? And immediately I drop the camera, but it's too late. And I look around and I see all of these 200 ghost faces around the room, just lit up by the different colored stage lights, just slowly turning to face me. And the irony is not escaping me at this moment, that here's this device that is supposed to protect me from people staring at me, and now is the very cause of it. 
And Mark Geitzel, he's not being mean about it. He makes a joke. He says, oh, cameras just make me think too much about how I look, and then I can't play. So, of course, everyone in the audience starts shouting, you look great! And someone says, I like your necktie, to which he responds by ripping it off his neck and throwing it on the ground. <laughs> and then he says, all right, I, I don't feel like playing that song anymore. And then he starts flipping through his iPad for something else to sing. So now, not only have I been called out and scolded from stage by one of my heroes and completely shamed myself in front of this crowd, now that he is skipping the song, I've literally ruined the show. And this is when the panic attack starts. So if you've never had a panic attack, I promise you they do great things for your breathing and your stomach and your blood pressure. So my heart is exploding in my chest. And I can feel every fluid in my body just rushing up through my throat and choking me. And my toes start tingling and they go numb. And my fingers start tingling and they go numb. And I start getting this incredible buzzing lightheadedness. It's like the kind of lightheadedness where you can actually feel yourself leaving your body. And it's something that has happened to me all too many times. It's not every day, but it only happens on the worst days. And it's happened long, uh, often enough that I know that the only way to get through it is to just close my eyes and slow down and write it out. So I close my eyes and I slow down and I write it out. And I wake up and I'm on the floor and Mimian is frantically shaking my shoulder. Are you okay? Do you know where you are? Do you know what day of the week it is? And I look around and I see all of the 200 ghost faces are bearing down on me. And this time I know it's not an irrational delusion because not only have I passed out in the middle of this credit club, and not only have I stopped the show again, <laughs> but on my way down, I had slammed the back of my head against the edge of this concrete step, and I had split the back of my head open, and there was blood everywhere. There's a woman behind Mimian who neither of us have ever met, and I can hear her calling for an ambulance. The bartender or a manager or somebody hands me a towel that I think is clean, and I hold it to the back of my head. And then once he sees I'm okay, then he quickly escorts us out to the emergency side exit, which is great because I truly would not have survived being paraded down the middle of that room through all those faces, except the emergency exit just leads to a hallway that exit out's right next to the front door of the club. So now I'm sitting down on that little stool where the doorman usually sits to check IDs and hand stamps. And instead of having been paraded past all of the faces, all of the faces are now parading past me out the front door. And this has made even worse because I know that that means that the rest of the show has been canceled. And maybe the whole rest of the night has been canceled. And maybe the health department's on the way to, like, burn the entire building to the ground. <laughs> the paramedics arrive, and they check my vitals. And they ask me how much I've had to drink. And Mimian jumps to my defense and says, he had one beer, which, by the way, I didn't even finish, and I didn't even really want. I just needed something to hold in my hand, which is another great trick, by the way. <laughs> so that is my first ever ambulance ride. And two and a half hours laying in the emergency room later, that is my first ever MRI. And then two hours after that, the doctor comes by and tells me that I did not have a seizure and I do not have a concussion and all she has to do is patch me up and I'd be free to go. And all night I had been dreading getting stitches. 
The doctor says that they don't use stitches on scalp injuries. First, they would have to shave the injury area, which she finds upsets the patients more than the injury itself. (laughs) And also, the skin on the scalp is too tough and too thick and too much work to, like, yank the needles through. So she says that instead of stitches, they use staples. And out of her coat pocket, she pulls this white plastic Star Trek phaser-looking thing. And she asks me if I'm ready. And she pushes it under the back of my head. And without even the indignity of the old 3-2-1 fake-out, she pulls the trigger and ka-chunk, ka-chunk. I feel these two giant industrial carpet staples being driven into my skull. So it's after 4 a.m., by the time Mimi and I are outside of the hospital. And Mimian has stayed with me the entire time, and I will forever be grateful to her for that. And she's sitting back there if you want to buy her a drink later. <laughs> and Mimian, she tells me not to be embarrassed that this kind of thing could have happened to anybody, and who cares what other people think. And she jokes that next time we go to see a show, we absolutely have to eat before and not after. (laughs) And then she asks me if I happen to notice that while we were sitting by the door waiting for the ambulance, that among the parade of faces passing by us out the door, that there was Mark Eitzel himself just walking out of the club, disappearing onto the sidewalk. And I say, yes, I did notice just walk right past us. Like, he had to have seen us. It would have been impossible for him not to have seen us. But, you know, there he was, just guitar case in hand, out the door, out onto the sidewalk. And it's late, and Mimian and I, we're exhausted, and we're still a little freaked out by the whole thing that has happened. But we just start laughing. We're laughing out there on the sidewalk in front of the hospital, and we're laughing like, Dave Grohl would have stopped. Eddie Vedder absolutely would have sopped. Like Lenny Kravitz would have sent the fucking muffin basket. It takes me the whole rest of the weekend to work up the nerve to take a shower and wash the rest of the dried blood out of my hair and to actually touch my fingers to the wound and I actually take a picture of it on my phone just to see how bad it looks. And I'm surprised to see that what I thought were these two giant industrial carpet staples were actually just regular office staples. (laughs) These two sharp, spiky things that felt so enormous in my skull and so insurmountable in my head, they were just regular, tiny little office staples. And by the end of the week, I'm showing them off to anyone who wants to see them, surprisingly few. And then when I go to have them taken out, I ask the nurse if I can keep them. And she looks at me like, okay, weirdo. Like, I'm the only one who's ever asked to keep the staples that have been stuck in their head for a week. And I still have them. I have them in a little Ziploc bag in a drawer at home. And I'm sure anyone coming across them, finding this bag with these two little bent staples, going to wonder, like, why the hell did you keep these? But when I look at them... I think, you know, sometimes the things in my head really are as big as I think they are. But at least that one time, at least that one February night, they really weren't. (laughs) 
So just uh, one little funny PS to the story is there's a music journalist named Mac Randall who was at the show that night. And in his write-up of the show, he described the whole incident as the most unsettling sequence of events I've witnessed in 30 years of concert going. So I've decided that if I ever get a book published or I'm in a show or any situation where I have to write a bio, I get to officially say that I am responsible for the most unsettling sequence of events witnessed in 30 years of concert going. Thanks. is real nice. Yeah. Makes me want to do somersaults. Well, why don't you? <laughs> I feel stupid. Harold, everyone has the right to make an ass out of themselves. You can't let the world judge you too much. <laughs> don't be shy. Just let your feelings roll on by. Don't wear fear. Or nobody will know you're there Just lift your head And let your feelings out instead Now don't be shy Just let your feelings roll on by On by, on by On by, on by So I was on the phone with Robert, and he was waiting to see why I had called him. It was a little bit awkward. We had never talked on the phone before, and I'd only met him once or twice, and I had a big question. And the question was making me feel really vulnerable. I was even judging myself a little bit for what I wanted. But finally, I gathered my courage, and I said, So I heard that you're going to be in town, and I was wondering if you would play with me. Actually, I was wondering if you'd be willing to lead an interrogation-style gangbang that I could be the bottom for. (laughs) And I was hoping you'd be willing to do this without actually having physical contact with me, because I'm not all that comfortable playing with cis men. I waited for a minute so he could unpack this series of questions I had thrown at him. And I worried a little bit that I wasn't offering enough in exchange for his expertise. But then he said, that sounds fun, tell me more. I should back up a little bit and tell you that I have identified as a sadomasochist, somebody who enjoys intensity in their sexual experiences that sometimes incorporates pain, often, or even humiliation. And I've identified that way ever since I found out about the subject, which for me was in late high school, due to some French films I was watching at the time. (laughs) But when you're young, at least when I was young, it wasn't very obvious how to move forward towards the goal of incorporating pain into your sex. I hadn't even had sex yet. 
So my younger years were filled with some misadventures, which are perhaps stories for another time. But at a certain point in my life, I had the great fortune to move to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, I joined the kink and leather community, and I learned how to ask for what I want, and more importantly, how to say no to what I didn't. And it was in San Francisco when I placed this call to Robert, and I did tell him more. I told him I didn't want to have any anal sex as part of the scene, I didn't want to be hit on my head or my face, and I didn't want any marks left on my body for more than a month or two, <laughs> give or take. <laughs> and I also requested that if anyone was going to have sexual contact with me, that they do it using safer sex procedures. Robert sounded, thought all of that sounded good, and he asked a few questions of his own. He asked if I would be comfortable with mind fucks. So, to the uninitiated, that means intentionally destabilizing or confusing somebody during a scene. I said, yes, please try. <laughs> He also asked if I'd be willing to wear clothing that could be ruined during the scene. Sounded good to me. And his last question was if I was okay with duct tape on my skin and around my hair. My head was more shaved at the time, so I was fine with all of that. So, as we move forward towards the day of the scene, we both had jobs. His job was to come up with an elaborate backstory, and he had genuine military experience, so this was intimidating. And also, he was a history buff, so he was going to make like a cool kind of storyline. My job was to find other people that would be the actual people having contact with me. And I might have been a little overenthusiastic. I remember bouncing up to people at different events and saying, I'm going to be gangbanged. Do you want to be part of it? <laughs> so when the day rolled around, I actually didn't know who was going to show up. <laughs> and I hoped that people would show up because it was a big event weekend in San Francisco. We all met at my house. I lived at the time in a house that had a shared dungeon in the basement. So it was the perfect setting. And um, there was Robert in his military fatigues looking very intimidating. And there was a hot dyke daddy. She, I'd had a crush on her for months because she'd given me my first over the knee spanking a few months before. And she brought her femme girlfriend. So the two of them were quite a pair. The butch had leather chaps and heavy boots and a black vest and freshly buzzed hair. And the femme had long, dark hair and red lipstick. She was a nurse in real life, so she was wearing a little black nurse's dress made out of vinyl, and the red cross on the front of it matched her lipstick. <laughs> Then there was my boy, BOI, at the time. He was mainly there for moral support. He was a small and devoted uh, submissive of mine, but he was wearing jeans and a white, ribbed tank top over his bound chest. And then two of my friends were there too. And they were pretty casual, wearing jeans and black tank tops, I think. And their little faux hawks matched each other, which was cute. <laughs> so, all in all, it was a pretty good group for a gangbang. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Robert went over the rules of the scene, and what was going to happen is that. They were going to do the interrogation, asking me all kinds of questions, but there was one question that was going to be key, and that was, what is your name? 
If I told them what my name was, that meant that the scene needed to wind down and sort of change pace and be over. Basically, it was my safe word, my name, which is a great safe word because it's really hard to forget. (laughs) (laughs) And then he was going to go over the yes and no list with everybody that was there, so he sent me to the bathroom to kind of compose myself and get ready for this. And he said, as soon as you come out, this scene is going to start. Just go in there and administer what you find to yourself. Okay, so I went into the bathroom, and I remember closing the door behind me, taking a look in the mirror and saying, I can do this. I want this. I asked for this. And then I looked over to my right, and there was an enema kit. (laughs) I had clearly negotiated that there was going to be no anal sex, right? Why was he having me prepare myself? Did I need to say something? But I knew as soon as I opened the door, gang bang on. So (laughs) I sat there on the toilet with the enema kit in my hand, feeling the tension kind of mount. And it dawned on me, you know, this is probably Robert's sense of humor. This is probably a mind fuck right here is what this is. (laughs) So I gave myself the stupid enema and I hoped that they weren't too close to the door as I expelled it in the toilet. And I silently cursed Robert because I knew that this meant for the entire scene, my anus was going to be activated. (laughs) But I decided I was ready. I, um, I left the bathroom and oh my God, it happened so fast. Hands came at me from every direction and they took me down to the floor and I heard the duct tape before I even lost my eyesight and... I was just completely on the ride. Uh, They picked me up, and I'm not used to being picked up. That's not a sensation that I'm used to, so I was really disoriented. But I felt them carrying me down to the dungeon, which is what I figured would happen, because where else would you have a gangbang, right? (laughs) (laughs) And once we got down there, they shoved me into a computer chair. And I knew this computer chair. It was my computer chair. And it had sort of rolling legs, you know, and plastic arms, and I heard the sound of my clothes ripping, and then I felt the air on my skin, and within a minute flat, I was completely naked, and I was being tied, arms and legs, to the office chair. Now, I realized I was sitting here without any eyesight, with no clothes, naked, in the room full of people, but I felt really strong in my vulnerability. I don't know if I can explain that any other way. I just felt really strong and ready to take whatever they were going to come at me with. And that's when the ridiculous accent started. If you can imagine a group of people that have no actor training whatsoever (laughs) putting on Russian accents, well, (laughs) then you know what they sounded like. I'm not going to do it. Um, (laughs) But I will tell you what they were saying. They were saying things like, where did you put the jewel? We saw you at the rendezvous point. Who are you working for? And... What is your name? Because remember, that was key. If I told them my name, the scene was over. 
So I denied everything, all knowledge. I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not the right person. And I just tried to enjoy myself as they started warming me up with pats all over my body. And they're bringing all the blood to my skin, and it was feeling great. And then the pats were escalating to punches and to spanks, and I was just enjoying myself. I had never had this many people focusing their attention all on me. It felt wonderful. Um, And there's a thing I have to explain for those of you who have never experienced this kind of sexual pain is that when your body gets sort of confused about what's happening, it turns over to bliss. And that's where I was. I was just blissed out, feeling all of this happening to me. And then they brought out floggers, and I really love being flogged. So there was a really heavy flogger happening on my legs, top of my legs and on my back. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm going to get bruised from this. This is really hitting me deep. And again, it's hard to put into words, but uh, I describe it by saying that when the flogging gets deeper, my emotional landscape deepens along with it, and I can reach places that I don't know how to get to in any other way. The flogging became interspersed with the whitening light flicks of a whip, and since I had no eyes, my imagination was going wild, and I felt like I could see the whip marks glowing. And after the flogging and the whip came a cane. Somebody was super relentless on that cane. (laughs) And I have an idea of who was around me from smelling perfume or leather or hearing somebody's voice, although the accents threw me off. (laughs) And even though I didn't have my eyes, I could see the welts coming up on me from the cane. All of this was really good for me. And at a certain point, I heard somebody behind me putting on latex gloves. You might think that's a pretty specific thing to notice, but I know that sound because it usually means I'm about to be fucked. (laughs) And some of the people that were around me kind of cleared away and made room for this person with the gloves. And they started focusing on my crotch, fondling me a little. I was like, all right, this is awesome. But then I noticed that something different was happening, something that wasn't just like, playing with me. And I have to tell you at this point that I have two 10-gauge rings in my outer labia that are really great for play. That's pretty thick, if you don't know how big 10-gauge is. And they were attaching something to my rings. I was like, okay, I can go with this. And then they were pulling on whatever was attached to my rings. And the pain was escalating, and all of the feeling I'd had all over my body was now centered on my crotch. And it was getting really difficult to endure. And it was taking me to a place that I would describe as not as interesting as what had been happening before. And just when I was starting to think, oh, do I need to tell them my name because this is actually kind of hurting in a bad way, I realized what they were trying to do. They were trying to get the entire chair that I was on to move across the room (laughs) by pulling on my (laughs) rings. And I was like, I know what I can do. I'll move my feet and I'll get my toes on the ground and then I'll help them pull me. (laughs) Well, it must have looked really stupid because they all broke character and laughed at me. laughing too. I mean, it was hilarious. It was the most ridiculous predicament. And the whole entire like world just became my blazing crotch and my sneaky toes. Like, okay, we're doing this. <laughs> and I was trying to think, okay, 
Based on the trajectory of where we were going and the, how where we were in the basement, I think I'm about halfway through with this situation when all of a sudden there was a horrible escalation of pain. And then there was a clink, clink, clink sound far away. The whole room gasped. And I smelled blood. So I play with blood on purpose sometimes, and I enjoy it. But accidental blood, not so good. So I took a deep breath, and I imagined the worst. I thought my entire labia had ripped open. I mean, that was a reasonable conclusion to come to based on the circumstances. And um, the nurse, I knew it was her because her long, dark hair was like right up against me. And she broke character and very quietly said, honey, I just want to tell you that due to the pressure that your ring was under, it actually bent open and got pulled out. So you just have a tiny little tear. You're okay. Everything's okay. How would you like to proceed? Well, I was very happy to hear that. <laughs> and I sat up and kind of addressed the room as best as I could without my eyes, and I said, I will never tell you my name. <laughs> so I might have thought at the time that that was the climax of the scene. I would have been wrong. <laughs> the nurse, you know, being a nurse, she wants to keep everybody safe and clean, and uh, <laughs> she takes an entire bottle of red light alcohol and pours it onto my lap. So if any of you have ever had an open wound that you decided to put alcohol on, you know how much that stings. <laughs> and then <laughs> she proceeds to grab the back of my head and shove my head over her strap-on cock. So... I'm usually really good at taking a strap-on cock in my throat, and I can do it without gagging, or sometimes just with, you know, that sexy tear-stained gagging. <laughs> but in this instance, the smell of the rubbing alcohol was wafting up towards me. And she started to build up to orgasm, because yes, women can orgasm from having their strap-on cock sucked. And I realized I was going to vomit. <laughs> you know, vomit porn is a thing, it really is, but it's not my thing. <laughs> I know you're all thanking me for that now. <laughs> so I fought as hard as I could to let her reach her orgasm. And I tried to stay in that moment, and just as she did, like a final last thrust in my, back, my mouth, the vomit rushed forward and it filled the space around her cock. And she came and I swallowed. <laughs> I felt pretty proud of myself. <laughs> So, at that point, I tilted my head up at her, and as though I were giving her a gift, I said, 
My name is Leland. <laughs> the scene, the interrogation part of the scene, was now finished because I safe worded. And they took off my blindfold and they took off my bondage. And the dyke daddy said, Hey, come over here and sit down on my lap. She said, She pet my hair and she said, You know, this has all been really awesome and you did such a good job. I love praise. Um, <laughs> But is there anything else you need? Because this is a gangbang and you haven't even been fucked yet. Thank you for noticing. So, <laughs> so um, I, I felt kind of shy at that point. I think I just smiled at her and she said, I would really like to fist you. I take a look at her hands. They were really large. And I said, I would be open to that challenge. So, <laughs> Luckily, there were two other people that were still present that were interested in helping. So all four of us went upstairs and we got onto my bed and we were really cuddly. It was a whole different sort of feeling than the interrogation. And it turns out that if you want to be fisted by somebody with really big hands, all you have to do is find somebody who has small hands and medium-sized hands to go first. <laughs> It ended up being a really amazing scene, despite a pretty major mishap in the middle of it. But mostly, I was just so happy that I'd finally gotten to a place where I could ask for what I wanted and arrange the intensity that I craved. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Shaka Khan behind me now. And we just heard from Leland Karina. Now, Leland was sharing that story at the Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon. And I want to let you know that you can find her on Instagram at Leland Karina. And congratulations to Leland. She is the current Ms. Oregon State Leather. And before that, we heard just a tiny bit from one of the Silver Screen's most wonderfulest of duos, Harold and Maude. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from a very dear friend of ours here at the podcast. Sean David Christensen made a movie an absolutely gorgeous movie out of one of our all-time favorite risk stories. If you look it up on Vimeo, it's under Lily Taylor's The Duel. Look it up. It is such a, a work of art, truly. And Sean shared his first ever story from his own mouth <laughs> on the show at our Los Angeles live show uh, several months back. Here he is now. This is Sean David Christensen with a story we call The Album Cover. 
the summer of 2009, and I'm sitting in my sister's old bedroom, wondering if I'd ever be able to finish anything again. The previous winter, my depression had caught up with me during my senior year of film school at San Francisco State University, and I became so sick I had to move back home to Phoenix to kind of figure out what my next step was going to be, just kind of leaving everything undone. Uh, the remains of my old life were kind of like scattered in my mom's garage, like bones, pieces of an old Ikea bed, and just stacks of unfinished school projects that were like, you know, preserved in mini DV tapes wrapped in bubble wrap. Uh, and I had dreams of maybe becoming an artist like Orson Welles, but that dream just seemed to be collecting dust next to the litter box. And as I stared at my sister's old wedding dress hanging in the closet at the foot of her bed like a ghost, I felt like all of my classmates were slowly leaving me behind. Until the phone rings. It's my buddy Robert, and he ran a recording studio in town at the time in Phoenix. He calls me up and he says, Sean, I want you to meet somebody. I have a client of mine. I just finished recording his album. He's a white gangster rapper from Scottsdale <laughs> named Escobar with a K, and he's looking for a photographer to do the uh, photo for his latest album, Extortion and Monopoly. And, you know, he's like, this may be good for you. And I, I think he was kind of catching on to something, because like, I was starting to turn the corner, I was starting to go outside again, starting to shower again, and I'm like, okay, someone needs me. This is a nice feeling. Maybe I'll give it a shot. I know the rap's not your thing, but, you know, just come in for a meeting. And even though this pitch session wasn't at the same level as like my, my classmates who were starting to get internships with like Pixar and Just Real Light and Magic, I was figuring it's a start. So I walk into the recording studio and he's sitting there and he's just like a mountain of a guy in a, in a blue tracksuit uh, with uh, socks and sandals by Adidas. And uh, I'm thinking, well, you know, as far as gangster rappers from Scottsdale go, maybe he has some really cool ideas for what he wants on album cover. Uh, so I sit across from him, thinking I would want nothing more than to get back to doing what I love to do, what I needed to do, which was make art. Maybe this is my chance. And lurching forward against the weight of the office chair, it groans, and he says in an unwavering, slightly medicated monotone, exactly what he wants. All right, so like my album's called Extortion and Monopoly, and what that means to me is I'm in space. I'm in space, and like with my right hand, I'm grabbing Mars, with the left hand, I'm grabbing Venus, and I'm fucking the Earth. <laughs> yeah, I'm fucking the Earth, and my dick is going through the ozone. It's coming out the other side, and like bits of the Earth are flying off, and in like big letters somewhere, it says Escobar. That's what I see. That sounds like something you can do. I don't know what I was expecting. Uh, I wasn't expecting that. But I was like, you know, maybe this is a challenge to see if I can make art under any circumstances. And he was offering 300 bucks. So I said, yeah. That's something I can do. So we shake on it. It's a deal. He leaves the room. Robert comes back in and he asks, so how'd it go with Escobar? I'm like, well, he gives very clear direction. 
I think we're going to be just fine. Plus, he knows a spectacular backdrop for the photo shoot. So um, I'm going to drive over this weekend and pick him up. He doesn't have a car right now. So I'm going to pick him up from his apartment. And Robert kind of tilts his head and goes, oh, so that's what he's calling it now. And I'm, what, okay, what do you mean? Uh, well, he says, Escobar lives in a halfway house. He just got out of prison, the Maricopa County psych ward. He was in there for eight months. Tried to stab his mother with a kitchen knife because he thought that she was building a bomb for the CIA. I think he's a schizophrenic. But he's better now. Now he has his music. Now he has you. Escobar is sitting next to me in my mom's car. That weekend, I pick him up from the halfway house. We're backing out of the driveway, and his supervisor is waving to us on the other side of the windshield. And I'm following the directions he gave me on a printed-out map quest. Uh, this was 2009, you know, remember. So, and that's in the center console between us, creating a kind of a wall. And he's silent most of the way for the drive. It's a, like a half-hour drive. We're listening to NPR the entire way. <laughs> And I'm just struck by how surreal the landscape outside our windows is changing from like liquor stores and tire shops to like rolling golf courses and palm trees. And I'm, I'm struck by the, by the magnitude, like how truly far from home Escobar had drifted. That's where we were heading, by the way, home. And his mom greets us at the door to the largest house I've ever seen in my life. Just palm trees towering over us. Big smile. She says, oh, Spielberg's here. Spielberg's here. <laughs> Gives me a big hug. She's really sweet. And my sneakers are squeaking across the marble floors. And even the echo sounds expensive. <laughs> and she gives her son a big hug behind me. And Escobar points across the kitchen through a pair of French doors where I can see there's a backyard. And he says, we're going to shoot back there. So I walk through the kitchen, there's like granite countertops and marble floors, and there's like a family friend making a margarita machine under a very like unsmiling, unsympathetic gaze <laughs> as it just like rattles in the background. I open up the French doors, and this spectacular backdrop he promised was truly that. It was the largest pool I've ever seen, pretty much like a lagoon. There was a waterfall feature, uh, yeah. And um, there was a guy I'd never seen before just standing by the diving board. Uh, there was something on top of the diving board, too. It was like a black duffel bag. And I could tell the bag was heavy because the diving board was kind of doing these little droopy things. And his black tank top was just as black. He introduced himself as Mike, maybe. He said, I'm the album's executive producer, cradling a warm margarita. Mike, well, nice to meet you. Escobar comes out and joins us, and Mike unzips the duffel bag, and he takes off the uh, diving board with a little bit of a spring, and the first thing that he pulls out is a uh, chrome-plated 12-gauge shotgun. <laughs> I'm like, oh, last-minute edition props. <laughs> this is interesting. Hands the shotgun to Escobar, moves the margarita in the other hand, uh, reaches and pulls out an AR-15 assault rifle. And I'm like, I think now's a good time to ask if these guns are loaded, which I do. And uh, he kind of turns over his shoulder and he says, they shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, shouldn't be. I was reminded of that talking head song, you know, the one that's like, you may find yourself. 
in another part of the world. In the backyard of a white gangster rapper from Ganey Ranch with a couple of guns. And you may ask yourself, well, uh, yeah, you got it. How'd I get here? Turns out the guns weren't loaded, but we do a, like a photo shoot with that. But um, I asked him to stand up against a brick wall for doing the, you know, the Mars and Venus thing. That way it would be easier for me to cut and trace the photo out and edit it. So he does it and I can see him close his eyes behind his sunglasses, like really feeling the moment, you know? And we take a couple of shots, but I can notice his arms starting to shake because he'd been holding them in place for so long. So I say, it's okay, you can take a break. And I turn around to get something out of my camera bag and uh, looking up, I see that his mother had been watching us the whole time, just kind of resting her face in her hand. And I was amazed that she let him back into her life, you know. And I was puzzled, you know, why, why he had chosen this place. Of all places to do this photo shoot, we, we were taking all the pictures against a brick wall. We could have taken these anywhere. I don't know how much of it was because he wanted to show off the size of his mom's pool, or if it was because it was only back here, back home, that he felt safe. Once I had the photos, the next step was to edit them. Yeah. This means I needed to find the perfect shade of skin tone penis to ostensibly match the one that would be, you know, doing the thing, going through the earth. To do this, I used my grandma's old computer in my mom's home office, uh, the compact Rosario PC she left us before she moved into the assisted living center on 20th Street in Osborne. Um, and like, as I'm scrolling through like, this gallery, this endless, endless um, choices, let's call them, I see like, the icon for spider solitaire peeking out from behind like, the Google image search window, and I'm, I see my reflection in the glass. And I'm thinking, you know, I didn't anticipate my post-film school career to, to start off like this. Uh, but here I am. But furthermore, you know, the photos, I'm realizing that was the first time I picked up a camera since my depressive episode. And as outlandish as the project was, I was, I was proud of myself for actually, like, finishing something. And I, I couldn't wait to show them the next day. So we're in the uh, living room of the halfway house, and I hand over a mock-up copy in a jewel case. And he takes it gently from my hand and cradles it like it's the most fragile thing. And he holds it up to get a better look at it. And a beam of light coming in through the kitchen window strikes the plastic case and for a split second creates a rainbow on the walls. And he just says, Wow, man. That's perfect. That's just like I imagined it would. And at that point, like a half circle of the other uh, residents of the halfway house had gathered up behind us and they were all so excited for him, you know? And they're passing the CD amongst each other. And his roommate taps me on the shoulder and says, hey man, I'm a rapper too. <laughs> I only got one song left, but my album's almost done. Can you make me an album cover too? And Escobar sharply replies, man, come on. Christensen don't work for free. No, this man's a... He's a professional. He's an artist. And I smiled because 
for the first time in what seemed like forever. I believed it. all for this week's episode folks this is talking heads behind me now and we just heard from sean david christensen who you can find at seandavidchristensen.com and don't forget to also look on vimeo for lily taylor's the duel it's the movie that sean made out of a risk story that is not to be missed it is so beautiful talk about (laughs) an artist that's a beautifully done little work of art right there don't forget you can always find new information about where the next risk live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour also if you're just interested in learning anything about you know our storytelling training that is all done at our sister company the story studio one-on-one training over skype you can take our in-person workshops in new york or la or minneapolis you can also take corporate workshops with us for the staff of your business it is all at the storystudio.org folks Today's the day. Take a risk. And I had a big question. What was it? In the sweet holy name of shit, what was it? He asked if I would be comfortable with mind fucks. <laughs> comfortable with mind fucks. Did you, um, look over to your right? And then I looked over to my right. <laughs> and there was an enema kit. Sounds delicious. I had clearly negotiated that there was going to be no anal sex, right? Because I knew that this meant for the entire scene, my anus was going to be activated. And the whole entire world just became my blazing crotch and my sneaky toes. I will never tell you my name. 